0: As we begin this book, we kind of heard from that video uh, that the book is kind of disturbing. That it's violent at times. This week, uh, as I was in the office with with Cindy, uh, she actually watched the whole version of that video, which is about seven minutes long. Uh, You can find it on Right Now Media if you want to see it. She said, We're really going to study this book? And I I said, yeah. And her response is, well, that'll be the highlight of our week. (laughs) I think the reason maybe we have that is maybe we don't remember what is in the book. We hear some stories. Maybe you can think of a few judges. Those who grew up with Tales probably can think of a, a judge named, right? Uh, a story about God using just a few people to destroy an entire huge army. Maybe we can think of children's storybook Bibles that have stories of Samson in them. But other than those, I, I wonder if we can really name some of the other individuals in there. Because some of the other stories are quite uncomfortable. And we're going to hit on some of them, not all of them. Judges isn't really that tame. If you think about one of the stories, there's a, a judge named Ehud, which is a, a left-handed man. It, scripture says that his right hand is is withered, and he, and he comes to, to give the king praise. And he says, I have a secret for you. And so the guy sends everything out. And, and Scripture even says that this king is a very fat man. And what happens is Ehud takes his left hand and grabs a sword and thrusts it into this man's belly. And the entire sword is enclosed over by this guy's fat. And Scripture literally says, and his dung came out. Not necessarily tame. I don't think that's something you put in a Jesus storybook Bible, right? There's other messy stories, too, involving a woman. Uh, her name's Jael and and we'll get to this story later, and how this uh, uh, Sisera comes to her, and, and is trying to look for this place of refuge, and this place where where. Uh, they'll be, have safety, and so he, he lies down, and this woman in jail drives a tent peg through his head. Not really something that would be in a storybook Bible or maybe even preached on. Has anyone heard a sermon on that one before? Well, in a couple weeks, you will. And I think even other uncomfortable practices develop and one of them really is the idol worship the consistent and perpetual worship of other gods that Israel is led into though they had been rescued previously by a God who parted seas and and caused Pharaoh to expel his people out though they had followed a God who had called their forefather Abram and saved them from starvation at certain points in time, they forgot about him and began practicing religion in ways that God had never really intended. It's in Judges that Through the violence and and the discomfort and the uncomfortable passages that we're going to read, we're going to realize the the brokenness of the world that Israel was living in. But I think it invites us, too, to to think about the brokenness in the world that we live in. The areas that we see sin and idolatry run rampant. So today, our main text is going to come from Judges chapter 3. You can find it. Uh, and those black Bibles on page 191, the student Bibles, if you got them along, kids, is, is 285. And actually, I think before I get there, I'm going to do just a little bit of a highlighting on what has happened previously. We may have heard a little bit within that video. Essentially, the leader of Israel had, had died. Joshua was leading Israel he was the guy that took over after Moses had passed away and and he was the guy tasked with bringing Israel into the promised land and like the video said he conquered certain areas but when he died they needed to to conquer more areas and the story begins in chapter 1 where they begin doing that they 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 conquer an area and expel all the people out, and it seems like the story of Israel will continue the, the way it had with Joshua, with them following the commandments of the Lord, with, with them following what they were supposed to do. But then but then they don't. They start being unable to, to drive the people out of the land, and, and they come up with, kind of excuses among them well they had chariots of iron or well these people were really hardy and and were really tough to battle or things like that and and so they didn't drive out and you'll see that in chapter one and two that certain tribes of Israel did not drive out did not drive out did not drive out did not drive out the people that were in the land and so God says that they that those people are then going to become a snare and a thorn in their side. And that that he himself would then likely give them over, that they would serve the other gods. And, and we see a phrase repeated. Then the Lord, or then the Israelites did evil in the sight of Of the Lord and served the Baals. And that's a phrase that we're going to hear, and I'm pretty sure each and every one of the passages that we hear here uh, uh, during the time period of Lent. So let's start with Judges chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 7. With that same verse The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of cushan Rithim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject to for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishthaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. We'll start back with this. Verse 7, this phrase that was repeated, not quite word for word, because there's some extra words in here compared to that chapter 2, verse 11, but it's kind of a difficult and, and messy phrase. It shows that God's special people, his, his holy nation, the people who are supposed to be the kingdom of priests, the people that God loves, the people that God called, the people that God has has brought to this point of being in this this land that he had promised to them, these people that had grown into just this very large nation, now had no regard for him. They forgot him and started to serve the gods of the land, the Baals and the Asherahs. You know, there's a, a golf company called Vice Golf. And and their tagline is embrace your vice. And that's what Israel did. They didn't embrace a vice of golf, but instead they embraced, embraced a vice of idolatry and worshiping other gods. Taking upon the the cultural practices of of these gods and trying to incorporate them into their own life. Essentially, what Israel did was they decided to make God in their own image. And so we hear about God's anger. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel the result of this spiritual disobedience for, for Israel was, was a consequence. A consequence really of, of their own doing because they did not drive out the nations, then the, the nations would come and attack them. And, and so here, that the Lord allowed them. The Lord allowed them to, to be overtaken for eight years. a scene that will be familiar, this, this cycle of disobedience and being overtaken. We'll, we'll see this in all of the passages. One that that is going to become all too familiar. Consequence in our life, in Israel's life because of spiritual disobedience. I wonder when thinking about the idolatry and then them being overtaken as a mess, what do we see in the world today that's a mess? What do we see today that is some sense of idolatry that we have just become comfortable with? What are the areas in which Maybe we've forgotten about God and who he is and and what he has for us in certain aspects of our life. Where is it that contemporary culture has begun to shape and change maybe the way we worship or even what we worship? I wonder when I think about our perpetual motion our, our need to maybe always be doing something. I'm guilty of this. My hands have cuts on them because I took apart my van this week and put insulation in it, and then I kept working on other projects, and it was like doing this, that, and the other thing. If I wasn't working, I was, was doing something. In our, in our lives, there's this perpetual motion, this constant busyness, Does it detract from something in our life? Has has it almost become some type of idol that we are unknowingly worshiping in our life? Those times where we are diligently working, but we're, we're working at all hours of the day, morning, noon, afternoon, evening, when the kids are in bed. Are we... Maximizing our time always, multitasking in the camp the at the elementary school, making sure we can get in every last ounce of work that we can. We like to make sure that we're not dilly-dallying, that we're focused and that we have all these things. We've got all this list of stuff to do, so we better get our nose to the grindstone and get it all done. seems like our generation is a group of people that if you ask them, how you doing today? Nine times out of ten, busy is going to be in the response. I'm good. I'm just so busy this week. I got this going on. I got to take the kids here. I got to do that. I, I got this big project left at work. And then we keep telling ourselves that next week will be better. Well, next week, I won't have this and that, and it looks like my schedule is, is pretty cleared. I'm not going to be as busy anymore. And then that week comes, and it somehow gets filled up, and it's just as busy, or a rat race, just like the week before. Maybe we think, once I get this project done at work, I'll have a lot more time, kids, that I can spend with you. Or maybe we think, well, you know, when the kids finish football, then we'll have a lot more time to spend as a family. Our lives begin to, to look like a, a, a mess of what the culture values and what the culture says that the families and individuals need to be doing. And I wonder if our perpetual busyness this diligence and determination that we see as such a good value in our society, actually, if we look at it through a microscope, we would actually find an idol in our heart. Our perpetual busyness, in our perpetual busyness, we begin working for a different God, becoming slaves to time, and our calendar is our God and the weeks of vacation are your heaven. Have we become slaves to bank accounts and see our money manager as our gatekeeper to our dreams? This is our constant busyness going from one place to another, does it have a Savior? Often within busyness, if we're we're focused on the the work that needs to be done at home, at at school, at at work, and, and those other things that just keep popping up to take our time, I think what it can develop into is a a slothful pursuit of God. When we think of sloths, I always think of some cartoons. There's a cartoon, I don't remember the name of it, but uh, the people go into the Department of Motor Vehicles to, to get something, and it's a sloth that's working behind the counter. And they're just moving so slow. A slothful and slow pursuit of God. And yet, in the midst of that slothful and slow pursuit of God, we can move so quick anything else that grabs our attention. Have we, have we let that idol of of busyness in our life create a spiritual slothfulness in it for the sake of some economic prosperity or economic productivity. I wonder if there's times in the past that we've seen that, that Bible on the nightstand when we, when we wake up and, and we say and wonder, And look at the time. I wonder if I have time for that this morning. We say, ah, I'll do it tonight. Only to just be exhausted from a full day of, of busyness, of nonstop doing things that we just crash on the pillow, dead tired. What does it look like for us? Has a spiritual slothfulness come in our life that, that we're, we're not desiring to, to pursue God as much? I think this pandemic that's happened for roughly two years now perhaps could have been that. for For two years, churches were forced to to go online and, and people were, were, were kind of taking in all things by watching online. And that's not bad, but has it, has it changed something within our relationship with God? Have, have, we, have we lost some of our spiritual fervor towards God because we're not gathering with people, I wonder? Has the easiness and convenience created something that has developed some slothfulness in our pursuit of God. That we begin not knowing it, overlooking the thing that keeps pulling us away from God and what He has for us. Idolatry, whether it's the bales of the world or this perpetual busyness that's an idol in our heart or a spiritual slothfulness. That's really only part of the story. If, if we remember, the cycle starts with disobedience and in a consequence of that disobedience. But, but then Israel turns to the Lord. Here we, we read in Judges 3, 9, but they cried out to the Lord and he raised up for them a deliverer. He raised up for them a, a savior is another way to put it. God's mercy then is going to come even though the, the people had been worshiping other gods, even though they had, had forgotten about God, they now turn from those ways and, and cry out to him and and God doesn't respond by saying, well, worship me for eight years. That'll make up for the eight years that you worship the other gods. And, and, then, and then, once you do this, then, then I'll save you. No, instead, God hears the cry of his people and he responds right then and there to save them. Something that's repeated over and over and over. That's why we kind of entitled this series, Messy and Merciful. The people will will get into this mess of idolatry, and and yet even though they do that, they're met with the mercy of God. They're met with a God who is willing to, to enter into these difficult situations in order to save His people God sending his spirit to rest on those who are deliverers of the people of Israel that they can receive the peace that God has for them. That's the same peace that that God has for us too. God hears those cries that happen within our hearts when we say we don't have any more energy to go on when we feel like we've been busy day in and day out, but we have no idea what we accomplished because we're too tired to even think about it. God doesn't desire us to be a a slave to anything else. He doesn't desire us to be a a slave to the bank account. He doesn't desire us to be a slave to the 401k. He doesn't desire us to be a slave to the calendar. He doesn't desire us to be a slave to the sports schedules. And so he too has, has sent a deliverer for us. A deliverer Jesus Christ, who he himself, too, just like the judge, was filled with the Spirit in order to bring about salvation for our life. A salvation from a maybe aimless busyness into a purposeful following of God. A, a place of aimless consumption and mindless consumption of filling our time Instead, into a a significant pursuit of who God is and and what he has for us. I was reminded of a statement this week that I heard at a a leadership conference a few weeks ago. When When we think about salvation, when we think about salvation, if you think about it as your vacation, it doesn't quite cut it. Author Kerry Nuoff says this, A vacation is not an answer for an unsustainable pace. A sustainable pace is the answer to an unsustainable pace. We don't look to the vacations and in the, in the time off as our Savior. Instead, there, there must be some sustainable pace that is, is brought in our life through the values that, that Christ brings about in us. to to take that idol of work and that idol of busyness and and, and that crazy pace that is in our life and and, and to let the Spirit do surgery on us and and figure out why is it that we feel we need to do all of those things. It's, It's to let Christ in to know that you are not the sum of all of your accomplishments throughout the week. You are, you are not the value of whatever your bank account is on Friday. Your worth is, is not based on how big that paycheck is. And, and when we let Christ form our identity, then, then the idol of work, the idol of busyness passes away because we realize that's not who we are. We are not the sum of our accomplishments. We don't need to work to craft our own slice of heaven because our own slice of heaven has already been created for us. We don't have to to work to gain our salvation because it's Christ who has already done all the work. I think I have another passage to go to. Nope, I don't. Romans 5.8 While we were still sinners, it was Christ who died for us before we could do any of the work involved, He did all of it. And it's Christ who offers to you His very life that you may find an identity in Him rather than in the things of this world. It is Christ who invites you to take upon His yoke what is a yoke? It's this thing that you put on oxen or, or big cows and, and they would, would drive forth at pulling something and it would be something that would be this heavy load for them to do. And yet Jesus reorients it. He says, no, it's not this heavy burden. Instead, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Christ, nothing more is needed for salvation. Cause just like the song we sang, Jesus paid it all. And as he hung on the cross, he said three words that bring us grace. It is finished he has won salvation for us no work no toil just a turning to God let us pray Father we thank you that you meet us even in places of idolatry in our own life just as you met the Israelites that when we we turn to You. You are quick to rescue and to save. We thank You that our salvation is, is not based on our own work and our own doing, because if it was, we would, we would only fail. But instead, we can rest confident in Christ, who has done all things that we may be united with him it's in christ's name that we pray amen today we have this opportunity together to come to this table to join our hearts and minds as we we come to the lord's table together united as body of believers here, but also united with those who are gathering at home. We can take comfort in that verse from Romans 5.8 that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, creating that pathway that we could not create on our own, no matter how hard we worked. And it's Christ himself that not only saved us, but invites us to this table he invites all of those who, who love Him and, and trust in Him alone, not in their own power, but in Him alone for their salvation. Those who have cried out to God in their distress and in their hurt. Those who sincerely believe that Jesus is their Savior. And, they, and, and those who desire to to move on each and every day, not living for the desires of our own heart, but to living for the desires of God's heart. We're invited to this table, and, and we invite all children as well to participate, just as they participated in the, the Passover feast. So we, we continue by saying these words together. Lift up your hearts to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. It is right for us to give thanks and praise. Let us pray. With joy, we praise you, Father. It was you who created heaven and earth. It was you who made us in our image and, and kept a covenant with us. Even when we fell into sin, we give you thanks, Lord, for, for Jesus Christ who by grace we may triumph over temptation, be more fervent in prayer, and be more generous in our love. Therefore, we join our lives with all the saints and angels and all of creation to proclaim the glory of your name now and also forevermore. Amen. We also give thanks to God because Jesus instituted communion. That before He He suffered on the cross, before He was He was met in the garden, he gathered with His disciples in in upper room to give us this memorial of what He was about to do. And when He gathered with the disciples, He took the bread, the unleavened bread, and He broke it, saying, this is My body which is given for you. And in the same manner, that evening He took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. 1 Corinthians says every time we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim together the Lord's death. But it's not just the Lord's death that we proclaim together. Let us repeat these words together. Christ has died. Christ is risen and Christ will come again. That's what we celebrate too. The fact that Christ has risen from the grave and He will come again. Let us pray once more. Lord, please send the Holy Spirit into this place specifically that this bread and this cup may be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we, Accompanied with all of your saints in heaven and around the world, be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love until you gather your whole church together into the glory of your kingdom. Amen. At this time,